Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Brainwaves. Hear the world differently. Tune in to 3CR Community Radio Wednesdays at 5pm for Brainwaves, Melbourne's drive-time radio show, giving voice to people with mental illness. One in five have a mental illness, but five in five can enjoy this great program featuring heartwarming stories, great information and some laughs as well. Find us at 3CR, 855 on your AM dial. Sponsored by Mental Illness Fellowship of Victoria. On today's show, we have Mara O'Hagan, um, Initiator of Service uh, User Movement um, in New South Wales, the first chair of World Network of Users and Survivors of Psychiatry and advisor to United Nations and World Health Organization and a Mental Health Commissioner for New Zealand. Welcome, Mary. Thank you. Hi, Mary. We just listened to your very entertaining speech that you gave about um, especially focused on peer support and its efficacy in helping people with mental distress. Uh, before we get into the meat of it, I would just like to sort of give the audience an idea of the speech and how you framed it around the rational observations of an alien named Xena from, what was the planet, Aquelius? Aquelius. Aquelius, right. So Xena is a violet, translucent, blow-up doll alien that was actually on the stage with Mary and also featured on many of the slides. And, uh, you know, it was very funny and a cool way, I think, to look at the facts that we can become numb to. So I was just wondering why you chose to present all of these facts through the avatar of Zeta. Yeah, I did it because I think we get very used to the absurd things that go on. And if I got a kind of a naive eye coming into mm-hmm. the situation, but someone who was kind of intelligent and rational who was compassionate and who cared about social justice, then they could look at the situation we have uh, with mental health service delivery and the other ways society responds to mental distress. And she she just has all these WTF moments throughout right. because she can't believe that humans human beings make such a mess of things and that there's a whole lot of contradictory evidence about what might work and yet we often do the opposite of what the evidence suggests. Right and you mentioned these WTF moments and I remember there were three of them. Um, What were one or two of these moments that you think would be useful for us to think about for those of us who couldn't see the speech? Well I mean, the first WTF moment was when Zena asked people, what helps you um, in your recovery? And or what, what sort of things do you want that, you know, what do you want for your life? And they said, well, we want work, we want houses, we want, um, we want a lot of us want partners and children, uh, we want a decent income, and we want to live a long and happy life, you know, mm-hmm. just like anyone else. And then, um, then the experts tell Zena about the outcomes for people with mental distress, and they're horrific. So people die 25 years younger, 80% are unemployed, uh, and then 85% are on welfare benefits. A lot less of them have partners and children, and and, and uh, they're 20 times more likely to die by suicide. So. 
you, you get this incredible encoderance. In so the, the most important people in the room are the people who are experiencing distress. Mm -hmm. They say, we want these things. And then the statistics suggest that they're not getting any of them. In fact, far from it, they're getting mm -hmm. the opposite. And the system that's supposedly trying to help them get these goals, which, you know, as yeah, yeah. we can easily see are quite like a normal person's desire yeah, outcomes yeah. in life. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's not that this system is anemic necessarily, is it? Is there, are there resources backing on the current system that seems to not be delivered? Oh, problems? well, one of the other issues is that 90% of the resources, so the, the, the next WT moment is people say the Zena asks people, well, what, what really helps you? And, you know, some people get some help from the clinical service, some people feel harmed by it. Mm -hmm. And then, but people say, yeah, look, I peer support, the ability to make meaning of my distress, um, the, uh, you know, getting practical assistance to get back the opportunities I've lost, um, and advocacy and all those other things that people find really useful. Um, and then and then Zena finds out where all the money goes and 90% of it goes into the clinical services that people are pretty ambivalent about mm -hmm. but not to the things that people say really help them. Right. Yeah. And why do you think the clinical services is not, are not as helpful? Because I think one of the problems is that back in the history of psychiatry or back in the history of mental health services, mental health, uh, people with mental distress were seen as a health sector responsibility and not a social service mm. responsibility. So what we have is a bunch of professionals at the hub of service delivery, psychiatrists, nurses and allied health professionals, who, you know, they run the show. And they're a little bit marginal. I mean, in a physical health setting, yes, they might be central. But in a mental health setting, their usefulness is marginal. So they really should be one of the spokes in the system and not the hub. And the hub should be much more about the sorts of things that people find useful, which are much more kind of in the realm of social service delivery, if you're talking about the delivery systems, than um, health system delivery. So I think we've got, uh, I've always felt that mental distress as a condition, as an experience, has been placed in the wrong kind of basket in terms of um, service delivery centres. Right, and what do you think is a system that exists today, or perhaps is a system that you think needs to be developed that could actually help these people? So I think uh, at the moment um, everyone can get drugs. I mean, mm -hmm. they're, they're literally pushed down people's throats or in their bumps, even if they don't want them. Um, and Imagine, imagine a system where everyone who needed it or who wanted it could get peer support. They could get support in their housing to get and find housing. They could get support to find and keep work. They could, if they were in a in an educational institution, there would be support services for them so that they could stay in study without having to take time off. Um, where they would have um, practical assistance in the day-to-day -day living, uh, community-based assistance when they're in crisis, um, and advocacy and navigation. 
Now imagine if everyone who needed it got those things as well. We'd have a very, very different mm -hmm. looking system. Yeah, there was an interesting stat that you said, which was that only 5% of people have access to yeah. support. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, yeah. was it 99% of people have access to yeah. pharmaceutical drugs? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That was a very interesting yeah. So, So the whole system is totally unbalanced. Uh, and I'm not suggesting, you know, if people think the drugs are helpful, I'm, it's not for me to say don't go on them, but I, I don't think people are fully informed about the side effects, the adverse effects of the drugs, but, you know, some people choose to be on them, and, uh, but, you know, there are a whole lot of other things that could be really useful to people that they're not getting because we've got a system that gobbles, that kind of sucks up all the resources into the clinical. Right to the And for people who aren't as familiar with this industry or this topic, what exactly does peer support mean for the yep. layman? So peer support is the um, giving and receiving of support from people who have similar experiences, problems or conditions. So, you know, there's peer support mm -hmm. schools where children, you know, school pupils support each other. There's peer support of diabetes, when people with diabetes support each other. You know, there's peer support in a whole lot of contexts. And really, peer support, as we understand it today, is really formalised. And But there's been informal peer support happening since forever. Yeah. And in fact, when I was in hospital, some of the most helpful people to me were people who were, um, uh, you know, other patients in the hospital. So I, I always used to think there's an inverted hierarchy of helpfulness. So I found the psychiatrist the least helpful. Sometimes the nurses were okay, you know, sometimes the OTs were okay. It, I found the cleaners better than the professionals. But I also found that, um, uh, you know, talking with people who um, have, you know, who were in the hospital with me and us supporting each other, often when the nurses were down in the office, you know, doing the paperwork or knitting or something, um, was where I discovered peer support. Now what we're doing with peer support um, now is we're saying, oh, this is a good thing, you know, if we formalise this and channel it uh, and, make it, um, and make it so that, um, you know, it, it actually becomes an occupation, and, the services, then you know that could be a really good thing. So, so now, all these years later, we have people who are employed by mental health services, as well as all by consumer organisations, to be peer support workers. And so that means that they're not like other workers because they they stand in front of the person as a person who's been through similar experiences. Before they even open their mouths, that is very powerful. Yeah. To think there's someone who's been through it and they've got to come out the other end. Um, and then when they relate to them, they can share from their lived experience about things that help them. They can bring in the lived experience of other people and they can have a, a really genuine exchange based on the fact that they both had a similar experience. When you compare that to the way professionals are trained to interact, they are there as a professional and the person opposite them is a, a client and uh, the professionals are trained not to share anything of themselves. In fact, it's pretty much yeah. 
And, and so it's a very different relationship uh, to the peer support relationship. There was something that um, you said about like you had a problem with the term mental illness and yeah. you said that there was a system that sees experience as illness. Yeah. And yeah, so I look, I don't, as I said, I don't mind, it's fine with me if people explain their own experiences as illness because I think we need to have the freedom to understand our, our experiences in a way that makes sense to us. I don't use the term mental illness for myself and I don't use it as a, in general either because I felt that the term, that, that the, the concept of mental illness was not helpful to me. And the reason it wasn't helpful to me was that it, um, it reduced what was some very powerful and intense experiences into this kind of presumed kind of chemical imbalance. So, you know, my belief is that, let, let's say falling in love, you know, um, but there's probably some really sort of funny brain stuff going on when you do that. Nobody says, oh, well, you know, falling in love is just an upset in your brain chemistry. People say that's a genuine experience. Now, True. with mental health problems or mental stress, um, if, you know, that, that was as intense as falling in love, and yet people kept telling me it's meaningless because it's just due to your brain chemicals. Yeah. And I thought that was really daft. I thought, no, you know, I had some amazing experiences, some horrible experiences, some really devastating experiences. But I didn't want to side, I didn't want to sort of sideline them and say, oh, they're only due to my brain imbalance, like chemicals. Being, because, you know, other human, intense human experiences aren't diminished in that way. The other reason the illness doesn't fit with my view is that, um, is that it, it assumes that there's a team of health professionals who'll be able to fix you, who'll be able to give you a pill, give you a bit of ECT or whatever, and then they'll be able to, and they're the, they're the key people in your recovery. And as, as you know, I don't believe that. I think they're marginal for recovery, those people. I think they can be a part of someone's recovery, but I think the key people are peer support people, people who believe in that, people who actually help them solve the practical and personal issues that have developed as a result of being In your speech and in this show, you've been talking a lot about the st statistics of uh, mental health clinicians not being very effective for treatment and we're not getting the right sort of outcome, uh, which is not adding up to like what people who are actually experiencing mental distress want. I was wondering if there's a place where we could find statistics and research for those of us who haven't read all the same books that you have. Are there any blogs or news outlets that will help give us information so that we can help come to these realizations on our own and help spread information? Look, there's a lot of uh, places where you can find this information. Um, one really good blog is called madinamerica.com and that has a whole lot of contributions from different people, so it's not just a single person's blog. Now, madinamerica.com was set up by a man called Robert Whittaker, mm -hmm. who wrote a very good book called Anatomy of an Epidemic, 
where he asked the question, how come, um, you know, if all these drugs are so great, why are we getting rising rates of mental distress? And he systematically tried to answer that question through his book. And it is quite a uh, big critique of um, the the dominant place that drugs have in our mental health systems and how really they're not terribly effective. Um, there are so there are lots of there's lots of literature out there about um, about the effects of the drugs, uh, good and bad. Um, there's uh, there's a I've written a book called Madness Made Me, which is a memoir that you can get on to Amazon, and that in a way is quite an easy introduction to some of these issues because it's not an academic book if people don't relate to academic books that much or feel like a bit of an, a more of an easy read. Uh, but I would recommend that people have a look around uh, but I, I recommend also that people start with um, Madness in America. Yep. Excellent. I remember you also talking about um, you believe it's almost necessary, yes, and you can correct me if that wording is too strong, to repeal laws such as the Mental Health Act. Yes, I think the Mental Health Act uh, does need to be repealed. I think it is the linchpin of a very coercive and ineffective system. And if we didn't have it, people would have to respond differently to people. I think coercion is a lazy way of responding to people. Um, now, what I'm suggesting is that we have equality with other citizens. Uh, I'm, not an, I'm not an absolutist about treating people without consent because they do that in the health system, in the general health system. If you're lying on the side of the road unconscious, they're not going to wait till you wake up if you're bleeding to death. And uh, there may be uh, occasions in, you know, in the mental health area where someone can't communicate their wishes. And there have to be uh, there have to be systems put into place or laws put into place that protect the interests of the people mm -hmm. who can't communicate. Um, so so, uh, but I think that the Mental Health Act um, uh, lowers the threshold. So we've got a different threshold to other people for when uh, treatment without consent kicks in. Um, and in fact, you know, you just have to look a bit crazy and disagree that you've got an illness and they'll say, oh, I'll put you under the Mental Health Act. Um, and uh, also, people can be put under the Mental Health Act, and this is in relation to harm to others, um, before they've even committed a crime. So even just the idea that someone might commit a crime can put, get someone under the, um, under the Mental Health Act, when in fact that would be not allowable in the criminal justice right. system. So we've got it's a deeply discriminatory piece of legislation and I think that we need to deal with these issues using the same standards and processes as we use with other citizens. Um, just touching up um, back on some topics that you mentioned before um, about like um, with the presentation that you did you had a, a slide where it said Xena recommends yeah. um, improvements you touched on some of the thi um, things a few of them can you list for us the rest yeah. of the recommendations so yes Xena recommended seven things and one was to uh, grow the leadership of peers within uh, within the the systems that are designed to help us. 
um, and that's at all levels, not just as uh, low-paid workers, but as leaders, um, but also as leaders in our own recovery, as people uh, when we're going through our experiences of distress. Uh, and then the next thing that Zena said was repeal mental health acts, and I've just talked about that. Uh, one was to get rid of the hospitals. I mean, there are places in the world uh, where there's virtually no hospital uh, services where people um, have get received services in communities and in their own homes, and this includes crisis services. So, uh, so, uh, and if we if we got rid of most of the hospital beds, well, there'd be a lot more money freed up to do these alternative crisis houses, home-based treatment, and so on, and peer-led crisis houses. We have them in New Zealand. Then the next thing is, well, we need to expand the range of services that everyone has access to. Uh, so, you know, just about everyone has access to medication. We need 99% access to peer support, to supported employment, uh, support in housing, and, and so on and so on. Then uh, another thing that I think needs to happen is that uh, psychiatry or me the mental health system needs to own up to the harm it's done because it's done a huge amount of harm historically and today. Now I'm not saying that it hasn't done good as well but it's done a lot of harm and that needs to be dealt with. I think there needs to be some pretty robust conversations in public about that issue. Um, and then we need uh, anti-discrimination and social inclusion programs to make sure that the community understands and uh, isn't acting out of fear and knows that you know you just don't discriminate against people with uh, mental distress. The other thing that which is very much a whole of government responsibility is to you know intervene early in people's lives so that less people experience trauma and social deprivation and neglect and abuse because we know that people who experience these things as children are far more likely to end up experiencing the type of mental distress that gets them into mental health services. The last question that I want to ask you is um, basically, um, I guess, wind back the clock to the mid-1980s. Um, what was your motivation for initiating the user survivor movement back in New Zealand? My motivation was that I had been through a system for eight years and I felt they didn't understand me and they didn't really help me. And I thought, I've got something to say. I've got something to offer and so have other people like me. There is nowhere for us to have a voice. There is nowhere for us to influence that system. And I believed that, uh, that we needed to bring that voice into that system. And on a personal level, um, my life work has been a quest based on that experience of using services. So uh, the, first, the first question I came away with was, what was the meaning of that experience? Because nobody helped me with it. They weren't interested. And so, and, but another even more important question was, okay, if that type of pills and pillows service was so ineffective. What are better ways of uh, assisting people in my kind of predicament? 
And that question has driven my work ever since. I mean, it's driven it in various ways. So the latest way it's driven it is saying, we've developed these workshops called PeerZone, which are peer-led workshops in mental health and addiction. And we're training facilitators in Melbourne uh, on the 18th to the 21st of, um, of April. Uh, and so, and, and I think there are more and more solutions that are being uh, created by people with lived experience. Another one is intentional peer support, which is also coming to Melbourne uh, the week before to train people who've already trained in, in, peer, in intentional peer support to be trainers. So, so there is more of this going on, uh, but we really need to uh, create our own solutions. And I just have one last question as well, Mary. Um, for people who haven't experienced mental distress and couldn't step into the role of peer support, but still want to help remove this discrimination and help people who are in need, what could you suggest for them to do to help aid this awareness revolution? Look, there are lots of ways that people can uh, be, people can contribute to this awareness revolution, if you like to call it that. And peer support is just one of them. You can contribute through writing, through creating radio programs. You can contribute through artwork, or through doing research, or becoming a manager in a service, uh, or becoming, you know, an academic, or working in a in a bureaucracy. So there are many, many different ways that people can contribute being a consumer consultant, probably one of the hardest jobs in the mental health sector. So, so there are lots of ways and the more ways that people, the more spaces in our communities that people take up uh, giving these messages the better. So we don't want to just uh, restrict people's contributions to being peer support workers. Because actually a lot of people don't want to be peer support workers and they shouldn't have to be if, if they have if they're more talented at making contributions in other ways. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.